have those this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. We're going to take a quick break, about a three-week break from Ephesians to kind of zero in on a certain topic that I'm going to get to in a second here, um, leading up to Easter Sunday, and then we'll jump in to Ephesians 4 on the 28th of April. But if, but if you could follow on this morning, Colossians chapter 1, uh, we'd love to have you do, part, do that because my opinions are relevant. Uh, we want you to know what the Word of God says. If, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a blue one in front of you. Um, I didn't take the time to look and see what page number it is, but that's okay. Jesus put a table of contents at the beginning for you, so uh, just look at that and get to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be there in just a minute. But first, I want to set up uh, briefly just kind of why, why we're doing what we're doing over the next three Sundays. Um, something you can know about me, I've, I've never really ever enjoyed offending people. Um, that's the second time. The first service laughed at that too. And so now I'm wondering, do I enjoy offending people and everyone knows it but me? You know, um, I'm getting a little bit subconscious or self-conscious here. But just, just to prove it, okay, that the staff here took a strengths profile from a group called Ministry International. And the idea is that uh, you, you answer all these questions a lot like a personality test. And some genius has created this algorithm that, that tells you all about you, okay? And, and in the breakdown at the end of it, it said, it, word for word, Brett does not find joy in conflict. And I think Adam said it best when we were reading that in a staff meeting. He said, well, who does? Right? And I was thinking, yeah, my worldview is um, everybody needs Jesus. But if you're somebody this morning who enjoys conflict, you need Jesus and counseling. Okay? You should probably do both. All right? But, but as much as we don't like it, as much as you shouldn't like it, it, it is a necessary discomfort sometimes. Right? And it becomes necessary when it's, the stakes are high enough, when there's something important enough that you need to stand for. So one of my favorite stories uh, from growing up, I don't have all the details perfect in my head, but I have enough for you to get to the punchline, so I'm going to tell it. Um, it was when we were younger, uh, my sisters hadn't come along yet, and so uh, it was just the three boys, me and my two older brothers and my parents, and, and we took a summer vacation to St. Louis and saw the arch and went to the zoo, and dad drug us through this horrible uh, Lewis and Clark Museum. It was the most boring thing I've ever been to, right? And then we found out that night that there was, the Cardinals had a baseball game. And we said, well, we like baseball. Let's, let's go check it out. And I think dad said, it's, this is good because I have three young boys, and I want, before I take them to a Cubs game, I want them to see minor league baseball first. So, um, actually, you know, I need to go back. I do enjoy offending Cardinals fans. I love it, Okay. Um, so we went to the game and we get to our seats, which if you have three uh, boys anyway from the age of four to, to eight, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And we sit down and, and this is the 80s, okay? And so the guy, there's a guy that comes and sits right in front of us and he lights up a cigarette. And my brother Danny was six at the time and he just kind of leans forward and he taps the guy on the shoulder and he says, Mr., you know that thing's going to kill you, don't you? Okay, so what, what immediately mom and dad are horrified and they pull Danny aside and say, you, you can't talk to people like that. You can't, you can't stick your nose in other people's business. And, and Danny didn't get it right? because in his mind, right, that, that that thing was really going to kill him. And so this fear of being rude or this fear of speaking, minding your own business is gone because that, he needs to save that guy's life, right? Well, listen, here, here, at, here at FBN, I need you to know something about us as a church as a whole, not just me. We don't enjoy offending anyone. In fact, we've, we've taken really literal steps not to. 
Okay, if, if you were a guest this morning, hopefully you saw that there are signs up all over the building so that you immediately know where it is that you can go, that you can feel comfortable. We have a connect team waiting to greet you and, and, and hand out uh, the bulletin and, and just let you know that we're glad you're here. We've removed uh, taking up an offering by passing a plate in the service because we believe that those who call FBN home should be a part of that, but not a guest. And so no one's going to jam a plate in your face this morning and ask for money. Right, there's no dress code here, right? We want you to be you this morning. And I'm going to be really overt as to why. All that is genuine. And the reason that we do that is because we know this. Eventually, you're going to be confronted today. Because it's impossible for you to hear the word of God and consider the realities of Jesus and not be confronted and not be convicted and not become uncomfortable. Because to everyone, the message of Jesus can be offensive at first. And so even though we don't enjoy it, we also don't hide from it. Because what you need to know about this place is we are and always will be unashamedly and unapologetically a Jesus church. And when I say that, I, I want you to know what that means. When I say that we're a Jesus church, I want you to, to get. And, and, and what that means, it's very similar to my six-year-old brother's philosophy at the ball game. He was raised to be, not to be rude. He was raised not to be nosy. But in his mind, this was serious enough to speak up. And so we're not a group of people looking to offend you, but we will unapologetically tell you the truth about Jesus. And the reason why is this. Acts 4.12 tells us that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Listen, we believe this morning that you matter to Jesus Christ, and therefore you matter to us. We believe that you have a soul and therefore you will exist forever, but we know that your experience forever for all eternity will vary wildly. Either you will be in complete peace and fulfillment in heaven or complete torment in hell, and all of that will come down to what you've done with Jesus Christ. And so we're not going to posture as if all truths are equal. We're not going to do you that favor, right? We're not going to act as if all authorities are equally compelling, we're not going to proclaim that all beliefs are valid because there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so for the next three Sundays and in our Good Friday service, what we want to do is we want to unpack for you what it is that makes Jesus Christ so exclusive, what it is that sets him apart, what it is that makes him unique. And so if you're here today and you, this is your home, you call FBN home, I'm thrilled that you'll be a part of this story because it's our prayer that this, this study will, will just strengthen your trust and deepen your reliance in Jesus Christ. If you're somebody who's, who's a newer believer, right, it's just, it's just in the last few weeks or, or last year that you've kind of taken a hold of this, I, I'm so glad that this is a, you're here for the study because this will set some foundations for you and help you understand this faith that you've just recently found. And if you're somebody who's here and you simply don't believe in Jesus, well, first of all, thank you for being here. And secondly, we're just so pumped that you're here. And the reason why is because we have found Jesus Christ to be unlike anything else this world offers. And when you find something that you love and changes your life, you have to share it. And so where we're going to head over the next four services is today we're going to look at how there is no other God but Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at how there's no other way but Jesus. On Good Friday, we're going to gather together in this room. Good Friday night, we're going to look at how there's no other sacrifice than Jesus' sacrifice. And on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at how there is no other hope than the hope that Jesus Christ provides. And so we're going to start at that foundation today, that this one truth that separates Jesus Christ from all the rest and makes everything coming possible. Why is Jesus different from everyone and everything else out there? It's because Jesus Christ is God and they are not. And that might seem really basic to you this morning. That might feel like a kindergarten Sunday school lesson, but that really is what it comes down to. 
And so what I want you to know is that when we read this word, we learn of what he did, we're not discovering a great man. We're not learning about a powerful teacher. We're not studying some role model to follow. We're not, we're not getting to the depths of a religious leader. We're getting to know God himself. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to invite uh, Mark Gibson up. He's going he's gonna to read uh, today's passage in Colossians chapter 1. And after he reads it, we're going to unpack uh, the ramifications of it. And so if you are here and you're capable, if you would please stand with him for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll be reading uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, that's on page 821. Speaking of Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thank you, Mark. Let's pray. God, this is your word. These are your truths. Uh, These are your people here today. This is your day, God. Everything is yours. And so we pray that that we would have the right mind to recognize that as as we enter into this time, as we unpack this powerful passage in this letter in the New Testament, God, that you would be the one who speaks. You would be the one who convicts and draws and frees and saves this morning. And I ask that we would just simply humbly respond to what you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. All right, so the book of Colossians is not really a book, it's a letter. It's a letter that that a man named the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossus, and in his purpose in doing so, he had not founded this church, he actually hadn't even visited it, but what he had heard is that a false teaching had found its way into the church, and people were starting to believe it. And there were several different aspects to the false teaching, but the most important one that, that, that compelled Paul to write is that these false teachers were trying to diminish the full identity of who Jesus Christ actually is. And so with that background, given that context, you can understand that we find some of the richest and most fullest descriptions of Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians. And probably the most famous section of it starts here in verse 15 that, that Mark read for you. And, and these, I think these are my favorite verses in the Bible, and I hate teaching them. Because you simply cannot do them justice. Okay? And so every time, every time I've taught them, I thought, man, I just didn't, I didn't come close to what they have in store. right? But, but here's the thing. We're not even going to try to cover everything he says today. We're just going to zoom in on this one idea, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And so let's roll up our sleeves and dig in. We're going to unpack that, and then at the end we're going to land at how this changes your life. And so the first thing that we can see from Colossians chapter 1 is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That was the first verse you read to you, verse 15, that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now God reveals himself, he tells us in his word that he is one God who exists in three different persons, okay? Um, I, I think my favorite line on this is it's, it's the Trinity is simple enough for a five-year-old to understand it and complicated enough that no one can ever grasp it, okay? 
Because God is too big, he's too vast, he's too great to be contained into one form, and so he exists in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all the same God. They are completely united in purpose and character, but each person in the Trinity has a distinct role. And what we're being told here is that before Jesus Christ came to earth, no one could see God. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you, you read that to view the fullness of God the Father would be lethal. Okay? But when God sends Jesus, God the Son, to take on the form of man, the Son then revealed to us who God is. He became, as Paul writes, the visible image of the previously invisible God. And it's not the only place we're told this. Okay, look at the screen. 2 Corinthians 4 says this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is what? Who is the image of God. Hebrews 1 picks up on this. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then John chapter 1, John wraps it up for us perfectly. He writes, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Okay, I'm going to pause and tell you this right now. This, this idea that Jesus Christ is God, he's God in the flesh, you can believe it this morning or not. You can take it or leave it. You can like it or disagree with it. What you cannot do, what is not allowed, is you cannot claim the Bible says anything different than this. Because clearly and repeatedly it tells us again and again and again that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That how we know God is through Jesus Christ. That how we know what God is like is by knowing Jesus. Because Jesus is God. To know him is to know God. To believe in the Son is to believe the Father. In fact, Jesus said this himself. John 14, Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I want you to see how incredulous Jesus is at that. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? I mean, don't you know who I am? Even after you spent all these years with me, any, even after you spend such a long time around me, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Colossians 1, we already read verse 15. Look at verse 19 again. Again, listen, I want you to hear the language. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then look in your Bibles at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. It's repeated for us, in case you didn't get it. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Are you starting to get the picture? The Bible cannot be more clear on this. Jesus Christ is not a teacher. He's not a role model. He's not a prophet. He's not some guy who founded a religion. He's not a good guy. He's God. And that separates him from everyone else. He is God and they are not. Now, the second thing in verse 15, and we're going to spend a couple minutes explaining this because it can be confusing and people have actually used it to try to disprove the first half of verse 15. The second thing in verse 15 tells us that he's the firstborn over all creation, which requires some further explanation because it's possible to completely read that and completely misunderstand what Paul is saying there. Because firstborn to us in the English language sounds like the first one born, which would mean that Jesus Christ would have been the first one born. He would have been the first one created if he's the firstborn over all creation. And this matters because if Jesus Christ was created, then he cannot be God. And so if you're not careful, you can read verse 15 as saying he was God and he's the first one born. And, and those two things cannot go together. But really, listen what you need to know, it's really quite easy to dismiss this. All you have to do is take a half a second longer look at the culture of the day, the context of Colossians 1 and the language. And you know quickly it's impossible for verse 15 to mean that. 
First, the culture tells us that the oldest male child, the one who had been called firstborn, would have been given authority and rights that no other ones would have had. So firstborn in that day became a shorthand. To say the word firstborn, what we're referring to is authority and standing in position. The context of Colossians 1, if you read Colossians 1, much less the rest of the Bible, it would be impossible to interpret, and I, I don't use that word lightly, it's impossible to interpret verse 15 as saying Jesus was created. Because the point of Colossians 1 is to show Jesus' superiority over all things. Verse 16, the very next verse, says that Jesus created all things, that all things were made by him and for him. The next verse after that, verse 17, says that he is holding everything together. You cannot create yourself. Either you are a part of creation or you are a creator. Now, I want you to note real quick, just so you know, um, Jehovah's Witnesses who do not teach right things about Jesus, they, they always teach that God, uh, that God created Jesus. And so what they've done in Colossians 1 in their Bible is they've added the word other six different times. And so their Bible says that, that Jesus Christ holds all other things together, that all other things were created through him and for him. And they keep throwing the word other in there. But what you need to know this morning is that word is not, is not in the original Greek. Paul did not write it. And you cannot take the word of God and add whatever you want to it. And by the way, it's not the only time the firstborn is used in reference to Jesus and not mean first created. Hebrews chapter 1 says this about him. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And the Bible is crystal clear. Creatures are not to be worshipped. Created things are not to be worshipped. Only the creator is. And by the way, in language is the last one. You need to know there is a Greek word that means firstborn, and there's a Greek word that clearly, undeniably means first created. And if Paul wanted to say that Jesus was the first created, he had a word he could have used, and he didn't use it. Because hey, look what he was saying, verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John 1 also picks up on this. That through him all things were made, John writes. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so the second thing that we can pull out from Colossians chapter 1 this morning is that Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. Now, for centuries, uh, Greek philosophers had, had argued against the idea of one creator, right? And, and because their, their, their mindset was that there had to be multiple causes for everything in existence. And so if, if you hate philosophy, bear with me for 90 seconds. We have to lean into it, and then we'll move on, okay? But their, their argument, the Greek philosophy argument, was that everything needs three different causes. And so for something to exist, there must be a primary cause. That means somebody had to have a plan. Somebody had to think it out. Somebody had to have the idea first, then secondly, there must be an instrumental cause. This is the power that creates something. This is the power that forms it and shapes it and puts it together. And then thirdly, everything that in existence needs to have a final cause. It means it, has, it must have a purpose and a design and a reason. And what I want you to see here is that in less than three verses, Paul lays out for us that Jesus Christ is all three of those things for all of creation. He's the one who thought it up. He's the one who created by his own power. He is the purpose behind all of it, that all things are made by him and for him, and he holds it all together. Now look at what he says in verse 18. He is the beginning, or he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Third thing we're told is that Jesus Christ is the ruler over everything. 
See, Jesus is not only the one through whom all things came to be, he's also the one by whom they continue to exist. And so what this means is that if you're in this room this morning, you were created because Jesus made you. And if you're, you are still alive because he's allowing it and you exist for his glory and his pleasure. I want you to consider again the language that we see here, that he's firstborn over all creation. That means he's first in rank and sovereign over all of it. That he's before all things, that he holds all things together, that all things are made by him and for him, so that he, in everything, he is supreme or preeminent. Again, I'll say it again. You can believe this or not. You can take it or leave it. But what you cannot do is argue the Bible says anything different. Because when it comes to the bottom line, the Bible is clear. Jesus Christ is God and you are not. Now, why does that matter? Other than it's kind of important for humanity to know who God is. Right? But there are three things, the three things that, that this means that have direct impact on our lives and on our eternities. Because being God, Jesus has wisdom unlike any other. Being God, Jesus has authority unlike any other. And being God, Jesus is sovereign unlike any other. And so how I want to land this this morning is by answering this question. If Jesus is God, then how should I respond to that? And I think there are ways that we should respond to his wisdom. There are ways that we should respond to his authority and ways that we should respond to his sovereignty. And the first is this. And they're all really simple. They're just hard to do. Number one, we must listen to and apply his wisdom. There's a really cool scene in the Gospels that we're told about. Um, It's later on in his earthly ministry and Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on a mountain. And, And while they're there, God the Father has something that he wants to say. And so this amazing scene unfolds right in front of the disciples where all of a sudden Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. Mark writes that they became whiter than anything they'd ever seen before. And then Elijah and Moses just show up out of nowhere and they're just sitting there talking with Jesus and the disciples are out of their minds. They don't don't even know what to do. And so Peter just starts shouting things like, oh, let's build some tents, right? And and Mark actually writes in there, he he was speaking because he had no idea what to do. And then Mark 9 tells us this, that the father has something to say. And that's when a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. And I love this in part. Listen to him. I want you to think about that this morning. You have literally, people throughout history have begged for this, for God to appear to them and tell them something. This is literally happening. God is appearing in a cloud to these men. His son is right in front of them. These men, by the way, who would lead the first ever church who would shape everything that the first ever church is about. And God is revealing to them this huge truth that we're unpacking today, that Jesus Christ is my son, he is God in the flesh, and he has their full attention. And he can tell them anything he wants them to do with that information. And what does he tell them? Listen to him. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus wraps up uh, what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. It is the longest recorded single teaching of Jesus in the Bible. And Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7 is one section after another of these monumental, culture-shattering, life-changing things after another. And guess how he closes it out? He looks out at the crowd that's gathered and he says, you all have two options now. Option number one is you can listen to me. You can build your life on me and on everything that I'm teaching you. And if you do, you'll be incredibly wise. Because what that will mean is that I will become your foundation and your foundation will be on the rock and even when the storms of life come, everything that that has been built there will stand because I am your purpose. 
Option number two is this. Don't listen to me. Listen to anything else out there and you'll be an utter fool. Because everything that you have built, your foundation will be on the sand. And when the storms of life come, everything that you've trusted and everything that you've hoped and everything you've relied on will come crashing down around you. That's how Jesus closed out the longest teaching he had. By the way, he had a lot of wisdom and he transferred it, a lot of it to us. What other word would you describe than foolish not to listen to him? And so when he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but by me, what should we do? We should listen to him. When he says that anyone who wants to be first in my kingdom must be the very last and be the servant of all, we should listen to that. When he says, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words, then I will be ashamed of him before my Father. We should listen to that. When Jesus Christ stands before people and says, at the beginning, God made them male and female, and the reason that a man will leave his parents and cleave to his wife and be united and become one flesh is because God has established marriage. We should listen to that no matter what culture says. Right? If he says, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart, the church should listen to that. When he says, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. We should listen to that. When he looks at people and says, you cannot serve two masters because you will hate the one and love the other. You despise the one and serve the other, so you cannot serve both God and money. Man, we need to listen to that. When he says, stop looking at that small little speck in your brother's eye and start taking notice of the gigantic log in yours. We should listen to that. When he says small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and few find it, we should listen and get on the narrow road. When he says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you, we should seek first the kingdom of God. When he says you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and you need to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that I've obeyed you, the church needs to listen to that. Here's the thing, it's a really good thing to read the Bible. We're in the midst of this 90-day Bible campaign designed to get you to read the Bible. We want you to know Jesus and know his teachings. It's good to hear what he said, but at some point you have to ask the question, am I listening to this? Am I taking what I'm reading and actually applying it to my life? Have I made any real definable changes based off of what God has told me to do? And God the Father reveals Jesus to his disciples and he just tells them this, listen to him. Do what he says. He's God after all and you're not. Second thing we must do is we must submit to his authority. Jesus, standing in front of all his disciples in the mountain at the end of Matthew, says this. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, needless to say, that's a pretty significant statement. All authority everywhere has been, belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, throughout history, people have rejected Jesus for, for different reasons. And, and, and I'm going to argue this morning that you can learn a lot about what was going on in that time of history based on what they've used, the excuses and reasons why they've rejected Jesus. For example, if you, if you read uh, the New Testament, a lot of the writers of the New Testament deal with the humanity of Jesus a lot. Especially John. John keeps talking about it all the time. And because the Bible is clear about these two facts, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. 
And that's incredibly important because to be, he had to be fully God in order to uh, resist sin. He had to be fully God in order to not give in to sin. He had to be fully God in order to have power over creation. He had to be fully God in order to defeat death. But he had to be fully man in order to face every temptation that we face, to feel every weakness that we feel, and to be our substitutionary death on the cross. And so both have to be in play. Well, guess what happened for the first hundred years after Jesus' death? All the false teachers that came and tried to, to question the identity of Jesus, they all took the same angle, that Jesus was fully God only, but he wasn't a man. They kept teaching that he was a spirit who disappeared. Do you know why? Because they're eyewitnesses. They're people who'd seen the miracles. They're people who'd seen, seen things that they could not explain. Everybody in that day and age knew he was different. And so what they questioned was his humanity, not his divinity. By the time you get to the Renaissance, Humanity is now questioning his divinity. Sure, he's a good guy, he's a teacher, role model, but son of God, who, who has authority to say that because all the eyewitnesses are now dead? Now, you wanna know what we're doing now? Now we don't even get to the question. Now our objections to Jesus start long before we ask questions about his identity and it comes down to this word in 2019, it comes down to authority. Because often today, Jesus Christ is diminished and dismissed because we hate more than anything the idea that there's an authority over our lives other than me. We resist with everything in our being, any authority over our lives but ourselves. And so we say things like this, that truth is relative. The truth is how you see it. And, I, and I, who am I to question it? That your experience and your feelings is what matters most. Or, or this, this is a new phrase that, that drives me up the wall every time I hear it. You need to speak your truth as if you could possess it, right? Now, today's context and culture, I can never declare anything about your choices other than express implicit support, and in turn, you can never do anything with mine other than express explicit support, except when it comes to Jesus. And yet, in 1 Peter 1, here's what we're told, that all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You see, the truth, whether we like it or not, is that everyone throughout time who's rejected Jesus for their variety of different reasons, they have all faded away. Every one of their glory has appeared for a moment and then disappeared forever, and yet Jesus Christ persists. His word and his truth endures forever. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And, and what we've got to grasp, what we've got to, to understand is to refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ is the most ironically foolish thing a human being can do. It is covered in irony. See, if I choose to reject him, I'm using the will that he implanted in me and the mind that he gave me to decide I have nothing to do with him. When I act against his commands, I'm using the body that he knit together in my mother's womb to do so. When I speak against him, I'm using the breath that he's placed in my lungs. When I worship other things, I'm worshiping everything that he has created and not the creator. It is covered in irony. And what has been lost in this entire postmodern, self-focused, self-worship age is that authority is good for us. That without authority, civilization crumbles. Without authority, family crumbles. Without authority, individuals crumble. Our lives are much better when we submit to the authority of Jesus. Because listen, man, life here, it's hard enough already. What's truly heartbreaking, what's truly heartbreaking is all the self-inflicted wounds and pains and hurts that we throw on top of it. 
When if we would just submit to Jesus' authority all things, self-inflicted wounds would just disappear. Submission to the authority of Jesus leads to more peace in your soul. Submission to the authority of Jesus leads to, more, to reconciliation in your relationships, especially if both members are doing so. Submission to the authority of Jesus makes bitterness and grudges just gone out of your life. Submission to the authority of Jesus gives you confidence and assurance in this life and the life to come. It gives purpose and direction to your days. Submission to the authority of Jesus gives you joy in the midst of your trials. It gives you deeper connection with other human beings and gives you a satisfaction and a fulfillment deep within your soul that not a single circumstance in this life can take away. But most of all, the reason that we should submit is simple. He's God and we're not. I don't know about you guys, but being a parent is the single most humbling thing I've ever had to do. And maybe it's just how the Holy Spirit works in my life. Because uh, our older girls have been old enough for some time now to begin questioning my authority. And so when they do, I'll sit them down and I'll begin to attempt to explain to them the reason and purpose behind the decisions that I'm making. The things I'm saying yes to and the things I'm saying no to. And that goes about as good as you'd think it would go. And so at the end, a lot of times I'll land here. All right, you're just going to have to trust that I know more than you on this. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but that's what they're left with. And then what happens every time is I walk away from that conversation and I begin to get really frustrated about that. Like, of course I know more than them, right? And every time the Holy Spirit always says, how do you think I feel dealing with you? And so now I'm starting to cut him off. I'm like, don't even go there. I know, all right? Don't say it, all right? The reason that Jesus calls us foolish for not submitting to his authority is quite simple. He knows way more than you do. He's God, and you're not. Third thing that we should do is take comfort in his sovereignty. To me, this one, right, this is one of the gravest mistakes with God that we make. Because the reality, our current reality is this, that we exist, we are sinners who, who live in a sin-stained body, who exist in a sin-stained world, and in that, here's the guarantee, hard, difficult, and tragic things will happen all the time. If you're here this morning and life is good, praise God, just wait. It'll get bad before you know it, okay? And what happens is we all experience this. And, and, and the mistake we made is we use these difficult times as reasons to dismiss or reject or push away God. And our thinking sounds right, right? Because we say, after all, if, if God has all the authority, he can't be good if he did this. If he really does have all the authority, he can't be good if he allowed this. Well, the truth is, even though that sounds right, that's a really illogical stance to take. Because what we can't do is we cannot accept the premise that God has all the authority. We cannot accept the premise that God knows what will happen in the future before it happens and he has the power to stop it and change it. We can't give him all that and then turn and demand that he works in ways that we can understand and that we agree with. We don't get both. Thankfully, we see this throughout the Bible. The book of Job, man, if if you can read the, the entire book of Job and tell me exactly everything that was happening there, you're lying. Because this this horrible thing happens to Job after this weird little exchange between God and the devil. And and Job has no idea what's happening. He knows his life has fallen apart. And then three of Job's friends show up. And guess what? They know exactly what's happening in their mind. And then what happens at the end of the book? God shows up and says, none of y'all had a clue. Every one of you were wrong. Nobody knew what I was doing. We looked at Joseph this last Wednesday night. Joseph, man, I don't care how good a guy he was, he had to question 13 years of his life being sold into slavery and being thrown in prison for doing nothing wrong. 
He had to wonder, what in the world is this? And those two experiences prepped him for running the country of Egypt. And in that role, he ended up saving the lives of thousands of people. You see in the, the Gospels, Jesus talks about going to the cross. You know what the disciples do? They scoff at the idea. They're dismayed at the idea. No, Jesus, this, this can never happen to you. And that one act led to the forgiveness and eternal life for millions of people. You've got to get this to your head. God is not simply not operating on our levels. He's always a thousand steps out in front of us, always. And here's, here's what we do with this. Listen, here's what you need to do. When you don't understand what he's doing, it's okay because he does. If you're out there this morning and you don't understand what God is doing in your life, what I'm telling you is it's okay because he does. Because he's God and we're not. And so the best thing for us to do with that information is not use it to push him away, but to take comfort in it. To stop resisting the things that he's up to in our lives and start resting in the truth that he's in control. To stop doubting his goodness due to your circumstances and start declaring his love and his power and his authority over your situation. Stop complaining that he isn't following your plan and start confiding in the comfort and presence of Jesus. Listen, with Jesus, and hear me, only with Jesus can we find purpose in our suffering. Because thanks to his power and his sovereignty, he will not waste it. He will bring good out of it and he will accomplish his purposes for it and his purposes are always for us. The uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus Christ is this, that he is God and all others are not. And the best thing that we can do in response to that is for you and I to be who we're created to be. This makes sense to us. Do you know a hammer makes a really good hammer and makes a terrible drinking straw? A bulldozer is a great bulldozer, and I would hate for it to be my bicycle. It's simple. We work best when we are what we were created for. And the Bible is clear. You were created for Jesus Christ. You were created to know him. You were created to follow him. You were created to believe in him. You were created to love him. You were created to serve him and obey him and submit your life to him and trust him and worship him. And there are depths of grace that you will never know apart from him. There is a reservoir of joy that cannot be experienced separate from him. There's a richness of identity and purpose that can only be found in him and eternal life is only possible in him because he is God and you are not. So respond accordingly. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that your word does not hide from truths that though may offend some are incredibly important for everyone to know. We're grateful that you tell us clearly, plainly, boldly that Jesus Christ is God. And so God, we pray that you would make us a people who listen to your wisdom, who submit to your authority, and who take comfort in your sovereignty. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room uh, this morning who's never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, never actually surrendered their life to him and asked him to take over and forgive them, that they would do it as they're sitting in their seat right now. That they would just pray to you, reach out to you and say, Jesus, take over, I believe. And God, for the rest of us, may you uh, just really specifically work in this moment. That you would pinpoint the areas in your life that, that we're not listening to your wisdom. That you'd pinpoint the, the things in our life that we have not submitted to your authority. That you'd pinpoint the circumstances in our life that we have just refused to take comfort in your sovereignty. And Lord, may we repent of those, surrender those to you. And find the grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. We love you and we pray all this in his powerful name.
Amen. Well, typically at this time, we have a response time for you to kind of deal uh, with you and the Lord uh, and just on some things he might have been doing in your life this morning. But instead of that today, we actually have communion, which is a great response time. Um, and so I'm going to take a couple moments just to explain to you how this is going to go, uh, especially for you guests. And so here at First Baptist North, communion is open to everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. Um, we don't close it off to any followers of his. It is a meal that he established on the night before he went to the cross. And he, he commands, demands that his followers observe it until the day he returns. And so in this meal, if you take a piece of bread that represents the, his body that was broken on the cross for you. If you take a cup that represents his blood that was shed for you. Um, and in that, he, he says we should do these things in remembrance of him, remembrance of the cost that he paid. And so um, here in a moment, we're going to have one of our elders, Mike Hogan, come up. And he's going to lead us in a time of reflection just to prepare us for this. And then when he's done, uh, we have a table in the back and a table in the front. And, and when he walks off, you just come up uh, as, you, as you're ready. Um, um, just as you see, it, it, it open invitation. Take the elements, uh, take the bread and cup, return to your seat, pray, reflect, respond. And when you're ready to take them, you just take them uh, on your own. Um, and if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do this, okay? Uh, it's not for you. If you don't get out of your seat, we're not going to be looking at you be like, oh, what's he doing, right? No one's going to do that, okay? Um, this is a moment um, for the church to respond to something that Jesus has commanded us to do. And so I'm going to invite Mike up now. Can you hear me now? As we prepare for communion, uh, I'd like to join uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, if you would. The blue Bible's in front of you. That's page 799. We're going to start in verse 27. Paul tells us, uh, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we, ju- when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So I'd like for us to spend a few moments in reflection. Uh, let's take a moment to examine ourselves to ensure we have an authentic personal relationship with Jesus. Let's also take a moment to confess our sins to God. As 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Join me.
Before approaching the table on either the front or the back of the room, please take a minute to consider the price that was paid so that we might be afforded God's forgiveness. Take a moment to consider Christ's suffering for you and approach God with a grateful heart, thanking him for his grace and the gift of mercy through forgiveness. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to come to the table when you're ready.
Listen, thank you all for being here. If, if you're a guest here today, this is your first time, there's, there's a card in front of you, a little white card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you just to do us the honor of filling that out so we can get to know you better, have a way to, to get a hold of you. And if you take that to the welcome desk just inside uh, these doors right here, we, we've got a gift for you to say thank you for coming and trying something new. Uh, we appreciate all of you come. Just a reminder, two weeks from today is Easter Sunday. We're going to have three services that day. So 845, 10 a.m. and 1115. And we're going to uh, knock them out back to back. Um, and so please um, make us make, be aware of that. Uh, have that in mind. Don't, don't miss out on that. Uh, we want you to be here. We want you to bring people and invite people. And then I do also want to let you know that we have uh, already quite a few people who want to be baptized that day. Um, and so if you, yes, we thank the Lord for that, but if you have never been baptized, um, Jesus has commanded this of all his followers. And so we'd love to have that conversation with you, talk with you about what that will look like, and, and love to have you join the group that, that's celebrating new life on, on Easter Sunday morning. Last thing, if you've got an elementary kid, ages uh, kindergarten through third grade, uh, who, who takes part in FB and Kids during this hour, uh, then thank you for, for rolling with our new system this morning. We have a new, brand new check-in system, much like we do for nurseries and now for elementary. We had a new drop-off location. Uh, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about, then somehow you snuck through the system today. Good job, okay? But moving forward, we want you to follow this pattern. Right? And, and just a reminder, they will not dismiss the kids until you go down and get them. And so um, if you want to abandon your elementary child here today, you can, all right? Um, but just leave, leave, throw some food in or something on your way out and make sure they can be okay. But other than that, we love you guys. Uh, go with Christ. We'll see you later. Okay, if I'm not okay